Hello, you're listening to, wait, how do you spell that? A rare disease podcast. My name is Colby and I'm the editor here at PatientWorthy. Hello, and I'm Nehemiah, a patient recruiter with PatientWorthy. And today we're going to be discussing breast cancer and the ways in which this life-altering condition changes those who are diagnosed with it. And we're going to be examining this through a lens that is often not discussed in mainstream oncology, the experiences of people of color. And to help in our discussion today, we have a very special guest. Jasmine Sowers is the president and CEO of the Missing Pink Breast Cancer Alliance, a nonprofit that works to advance equity for people of color affected by breast cancer through community and collaboration. Jasmine, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. We know you have a very busy schedule, so we're very happy to have you on and talk about the great work you're doing over at the Missing Pink. Thank you. I'm excited. Yes. Thank you, Jasmine. So to start us off, would you mind giving us some of your background and how you became involved in breast cancer advocacy? Absolutely. So I was misdiagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 25 in 2016, and it took me about six or seven months before I got an accurate diagnosis. During that time, I was dismissed. I was told that I was too young. I passed mammograms, and I had all these experiences that allowed me to slip under the radar. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing that really worked for me, though, was this awareness that still felt like something was wrong. So I didn't have the traditional symptoms. I never felt a lump. My breast wasn't red, but it was swollen and painful. And I told another doctor who was happened to be a black woman, I told her like, I'm having these symptoms in the same appointment that me and my ex-husband were exploring family planning. And she said, if you think something's wrong, something's wrong. And that made all the difference because that got me to a specialist who did a breast MRI. And that's how we discovered the breast cancer. From there, I did proton therapy, radiation. I had a bilateral mastectomy and five years of hormone therapy. And almost immediately, I went through that experience making notes of where the ball was dropped, whether it was Um, having doctors that weren't communicating with me, being in a period where we didn't know whether I'd have to go through chemo and them not having wigs for Black women at the local center. And so I started to take the experience and what can I do with this? I started advocating really volunteering with the Young Survival Coalition. And then in 2019, I started the first online community for women of color affected by breast cancer, really giving a voice and a face to people that we weren't finding each other. We couldn't see each other. And it was very lonely and isolating. And a couple of years ago, I left for the rest of us to do the missing pink because I really understand that we are more powerful when we work together. And so that's what this new work is dedicated to. I think everyone listening to the show today probably knows somebody who's been diagnosed with breast cancer at some point in their lives. It's not a rare condition per se, but there are two reasons why I know I'm excited to talk to you today, Jasmine. One reason is that there has been an increasing emphasis in recent years on the genotypes of cancer. So the BRCA mutations, germline mutations, triple negative breast cancer, all of these fall into the same umbrella category of breast cancer, but have very different prognoses treatment requirements, and other factors that make the experience unique to each patient. In a sense, because of the way these factors combine, each case is kind of rare on its own. Can you expand a little more on why we need to be mindful of these individualized experiences for patients? You know what's interesting is you tell people you have breast cancer, I think because there are all these big campaigns and people are so used to talking about it to a degree. I think people have kind of made like the good kind and they don't even realize how many different types there are, which also makes it difficult when you think about how many 
different ways symptoms can manifest in bodies, right? Right. So Mm -hmm. when we're looking at different subtypes, even in the last few years, the differentiation between HER2 positive low and high, I was a patient advocate on a clinical trial for triple negative breast cancer that actually does respond to a certain type of estrogen. And so those different differentiations allow doctors to understand what treatments are going to be most effective, which is so important. I think there are a lot of patients that don't even recognize how unique their cancer is. And so sometimes we're saying, well, I'm estrogen positive and you are too. We should be getting the same treatment. And there are even different levels of estrogen receptors. So it is so important that not only doctors understand the specifics of the cancer that we have, but also patients to understand so they know that they're getting the best treatment for themselves. Definitely. And what should people of color be aware of concerning breast cancer symptoms and the diagnosis journey? Are there factors that healthcare professionals fail to consider when caring for people of color with breast cancer? So I think it is important to, that we are intentional about language. So when we say people of color, we are saying non-white people. So that would include Black, um, Asian, Latina, Pacific Islander. And so even across those different communities, those things can look a little different. We know that for Black women and specifically that we are presenting with more aggressive breast cancers at a younger age, often younger than the screening age, which presents a challenge, not only for insurance, but also in having doctors that are willing to take us seriously when we have concerns. The other thing is that Black women in particular are more likely to have inflammatory breast cancer. And traditional breast cancer awareness campaigns, they don't really consider inflammatory breast cancer symptoms. So that can be a little challenging and making sure that people are aware, right? And then you also have Black men as well, more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer and and die from breast cancer. And we really haven't expanded that conversation over into Black men or really in men in general, right? And so again, there does become both this double-edged sword, a lack of awareness in Black and Brown communities about the prevalence of breast cancer and what that looks like for us on us, because a lot of the awareness, it even uses a lot of white imagery. You don't really see a lot of Black diagrams or Brown diagrams for what it looks like to do an exam. And I think even those small things kind of reinforce this idea that doesn't happen to us when it's happening in the worst way. Ah, Right. So another reason we're excited to talk to you today is because your organization, The Missing Pink, focuses on the experiences of people of color who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. Can you tell us about some of the ways in which this experience can differ from the traditional narrative of a breast cancer patient and how it's not being addressed by mainstream oncology? I think in the last few years, There's been a stronger emphasis on those barriers, but even then the conversation has really kind of stayed at the barriers, right? They're still doing a lot of, let's redo the research that we did a few years ago that said there are problems. We know that there are problems. How about we look at that research and say what we can do differently because we are aware of the problems. Problems. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing with Black and Brown communities, not only like the insurance barriers or the access barriers, the lack of understanding, these health literacy barriers, we're also having communities, I think just at the basis of it, our healthcare system was not designed for black and brown people. It it literally was not, right? It was actually started with white men. And then we kind of expand into women. 
And so what we have is we have a one size fits all system that needs to treat diverse populations that mm-hmm. needs to understand there are people with different cultures and different needs. And we can't all filter that system the same way. So I think between the different cultural barriers, between the systemic barriers, we are then having to deal with systems that just weren't designed for us. Even the educational the trains that doctors receive, they're not really designed for black and brown patients. We still are dealing with this myth and misconception around like even pain, right? Mm. They think that black and brown people experience pain. There were studies about black people not receiving the same information about navigating their treatment because doctors simply just didn't want the information. And so it's happening on both sides, which means change, the change has to happen on multiple levels. As mentioned earlier, you've been involved with multiple breast cancer organizations. Can you talk about how the idea for the missing pink came about and how it's working toward building health equity and better supporting people of color in the breast cancer community? So during my time in the breast cancer community, um, like I said, I started with Young Survival Coalition, then I went to LBBC and then starting my own organization, the first blog. And during my time with that blog community, I started to get pulled into conversations for different organizations and they wanted my thoughts on how to change problems. How could my experience be used to invoke change, right? And so in these conversations, I was talking to people. It was something like recognizing childcare is an issue. And I remember being on Twitter one day and someone posting like, oh, it's so great that my facility is gorgeous facility. My facility has a childcare facility. And I'm thinking, is childcare like an issue in that community? Because if that's like a standard thing, why aren't we doing that in black and brown communities where we know that it's an actual mm-hmm. barrier to care, right? And I'm in this conversation with someone and they go, oh, my organization, we partner with the YMCA or we partner with Boys and Girls Club. And I was like, light bulb moment. More people need to know that that might be a possibility in their community. And so in this space, it really is about not just looking at what one organization can do because one organization can't do it all. It's looking at what's happening when we are doing things together. And so I'm really bringing organizations together in a different way to not just highlight the work of one, but for us to understand what happens when you're pulling together the efforts of many. Thank you for that. In our discussion leading up to this episode, you mentioned the idea of a spectrum of need in breast cancer patients. This is the idea that not everyone with a new breast cancer diagnosis is going to come equipped with the same tools to help navigate this confusing time in their life. Can you expand on that and why it's important to work towards addressing this? You know, I think coming in very early on or really new to the advocacy space, we started talking about Breast Cancer Action Month and then realized there's an actual breast cancer action organization. So they actually started that. We started talking about like, it's time to take action. We need to take action. And I think the more that I was in the work, the more that I started to read the studies, the more that I started to like lead and dive into research, the more I started to understand like, oh man, not everyone's in a place where they can take action. There are some people that can't think about a clinical trial because they can't afford their rent. There are some people that are still, again, they're needing, they don't understand the conversation that they're having with their doctor, let alone being put on a big stage to be advocating for people. And so I do think that as we have these approach and we think about individualized experiences and individualized care, that we are taking all those different components into consideration and not just trying to push everyone to one end or expecting that everyone is able to and really just see where are you in this space and how can I support you where you are in this process. 
One of the new things your organization has created is a brand new magazine launched just last week. Congratulations. Uh, called More Life. I'm not going to pretend that launching a new publication at any point in history is easy, but as someone who has worked in journalism for almost a decade, the idea of like a new magazine or newspaper in 2023, it always gets me excited. <laughs> so can you tell us more about More Life? Give us an idea of what people can expect to read in the first issue and how you're hoping it will help people. Yes. So More Life Magazine is a resource for people of color affected by breast cancer and their care communities. So it was really based in about five, four or five different sections. We included stories of reflections of hope. This covered everything from my personal experience as a young survivor to caregiving for my grandmother with metastatic breast cancer, and then also having my mother as a caregiver in that trio for us, a dynamic I'm hoping is not very common across the world, but then also looking at some really difficult discussions within that, like what happens when we delay a diagnosis and making sure that women understand that in delaying diagnosis, we're not delaying being sick, we're delaying treatment. And that's a hard conversation to have, but it's one that we have to start having in black and brown communities. We also highlight some barrier-breaking leaders in the work and the in the space. Who's doing the cool stuff? Who's working differently, thinking differently? We have some really cool stories about diversity and inclusion. We're looking at some of these great efforts like Project Life and their virtual wellness house, the only one that's dedicated to the metastatic breast cancer community, and also highlighting male breast cancer and navigating breast cancer for the LGBTQ plus community. So we were very intentional about trying to showcase diverse experiences. This first issue does primarily look at experiences between Black and Latino people affected by breast cancer. And the hope is that we are curating a space that is really built on information, innovation, and inspiration, right? That people can see a reflection of themselves, people that look like them and navigate similar challenges, not only navigate the real world of disparities, but also receive help and hope to get to the other side of this because that is mm -hmm. also happening in this space. The edition is available in print. So we do, it was hard, but <laughs> we made it happen. It's a website, a blog that we'll be adding some stuff to over the next few years. And it's also available in downloadable PDF. And on the website, we, in addition to those stories, we also have a resource directory of about 300 resources of organizations from all kinds of things, mental health, support groups, advocacy, blogs, podcasts, all different facets. So one of the topics covered in the first issue of More Life that really sat with me is the idea of Black women voluntarily delaying their diagnosis of breast cancer. So in other words, we know that we're having these symptoms. We know that we should be seeking treatment, but for various reasons, we don't. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yes. Everything to Everyone is the name of that article. And it is probably arguably to me, I think one of the most powerful stories in this, the conversation that we're not really having. And this story is told from the lens of, of the perspective of a girl that's about my age, so her 33, 34, and she lost her mother to metastatic breast cancer. And her mother had hid the tumor the entire time. So by the time they found it, it was already too late and things happened very quickly. And so she's looking at saying like, my mom hid this from me. I don't think my mom wants to be a burden. And again, like my mom was everything to everyone. And yet she needed us. Like she didn't feel like she could. What we've seen with Black women 
are these delays in diagnosis? And it's not just something that happens because people don't have insurance. I've talked to many women that knew they had symptoms, but they also had kids and had jobs and they just felt like so overburdened with their just existence as a Black woman that they did not feel like they had the time and the capacity to care for themselves. So as I said earlier, I think one of the things that I really want women to understand is that what I think people are doing, they are delaying, and I'll be specific, those who have the capacity and the resources to receive treatment or to access care, because not some delay is because people don't have access. So they don't understand their benefits. That is another issue, right? For those women that actually do have the capacity and the resources to receive care and they ignore the symptoms, oftentimes they're saying like, well, I just need to be here for my kids, or I have to do this, that, and the third. And Again, there is kind of this mentality that they are delaying sickness when they're really delaying treatment. And I explained this to someone over the weekend. It's really like having an hourglass. And once you realize that you have symptoms of breast cancer, like it's ticking, right? And the delay that you have in that time is the equivalent of like shaking the hourglass. Because as we said earlier, cancers are very different. Breast cancers are very different. Some are more aggressive than others. Some tumors go faster than others. You really do not know what you're dealing with until you can actually get to a doctor. And every time you make the decision to take care of yourself, to get something checked out, whether it's breast cancer or not, that is the equivalent of turning that that sand of time so that you can add more time. I think people think they're adding time by not addressing it when really we're losing it. And so I really want to help women reframe that. Another topic that is close to your heart is the financial and emotional burden that advocacy takes, especially if someone is being an advocate for a community while also being a patient. Can you expand on that and talk about why even advocates need to give themselves the space to be patients? You know, I am so blessed that I've had the opportunity to turn pain into purpose or to turn wounds into wisdom. I'm so thankful that I have that opportunity. I think for myself, though, I may have jumped into the deep end very quickly. I remember right before we started for the Breast Buds, which is the first company that I started and left with my co-founding partner, we had an interview with some people and we were trying to see if they thought it was a great idea. And most people were like, don't worry about it. Don't do it. One day somebody will. But there was one person in particular that said, how many years out are you from your diagnosis? And at the time, we're like two. She said, it's too soon. And I did not know what she meant. (laughs) I realized what she meant as I had gotten down the road. I think for more, my relationship to the community changed how much I wanted to be involved with what day-to-day cancer looks like for everyone all the time changed. Being an advocate, having a business in this space, and then also having a full-time job, like those are very strenuous environments. And I found myself in a season where my life just felt like breast cancer, every part of it, because that's what I was doing. I was advocate. I was doing all these different things. And so I think we have to encourage people too. And I think on one side, I think a lot of us are looking at what other people are doing and we're saying we have to do something with it. And I was listening to something the other day and they said, you don't have to like make meaning out of the mess. Like that'll be revealed to you over time if you allow that to be done. So we don't have to rush so quickly. We can really take the time, make sure that we are getting our needs met and that we can take care of ourselves and our families and help other people. And I think sometimes we forget that in this space. We neglect ourselves and the desire to help others. So what's next on the horizon for you and the missing pink? So I'm really excited. I think that 
I feel like my horizons are broadening, especially in conversations as we've done the rollout. I'm thinking about what do podcasts look like? There were so many great conversations I had this year to interview people for this. And I was like, I really wish we had a podcast. So I'm hoping that next year we not only do the rollout of different stories, but we have the podcast for this. I'm looking forward to perhaps even adding an opinion column so that I can invite more innovation and ideas into the space. But I think people are actually starting to reach out to us now, which is really cool in those last couple of weeks since launch. And they're wanting to know how can they be a part of it? How can they share the work that's happening in their community? And two, people are wanting to put this resource in their local healthcare facilities and showcase um, their outreach events already. So my goal this year was to get 10 partners to have resources in their local community somewhere. And we're already at three and it's week two. So <laughs> we're going to probably surpass that goal very quickly. You're doing it. Can I expand a little bit on this question, if that's all right with both of you? Yeah, sure. sure. I would just love to know. Okay, so here's the question. I am obsessed with the name. The Missing Pink. And I just need to know how you chose this name. Where'd it come from? So it was a God idea. I'm going to be honest. (laughs) The name was really inspired by the idea of the lack of connection that happens in the breast cancer community, which is a play on the missing link, right? The fact that there are so many duplicative efforts. There are so many disjointed efforts, especially for the communities that have the greatest need we're dogpiling on each other. And that's just not how you move anywhere fast. And the other part of it was, I think the pink though, it's a little white. I chose a pink that had a little bit more brown tone to it because it also speaks to the fact that there are people of color who are part of this experience who aren't really being included in that main narrative. There are a lot of innovation spaces that are popping up right now. There are like, there's advocacy exchange and other things. And I'm like, but where are the space for people that want to focus just on this? Because there's so much great work happening. And I think it's so needed that we have a space where we can say, I'm willing to put my lane beside your lane and allow people to see the great work that's happening in this space where the need is so great and the call to action is so dire. Mm, Thank you. Yeah, that's great. I didn't even make the connection initially to like the missing link. You know, I was thinking pink for breast cancer and, you know, what wasn't being encompassed in that like universal symbol for it. So that's great. It's an excellent name. Yeah. If somebody would like to learn more about the missing pink and the work you're doing to promote equity in the breast cancer community, or perhaps pick up a copy of your newly launched More Life magazine and help fund that publication for the future, where's the best place for them to do that? You can go to themissingpink.org. And if you would like to see the publication, though you can get it from themissingpink.org, it's also themorelifemag.com. Right, great. And they can connect with you on socials there as well? Absolutely. I'm not really active on social because I have a full-time job, but (laughs) we do have some pages up. Uh, Primarily, there's an Instagram page and there is a Facebook page at themissingpinkbca. Right, great. Great. Well, Jasmine, I'd love to thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story and telling us about the important work that you're doing over at The Missing Pink. It is very much appreciated. Yes. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Of course. Absolutely. And if you'd like to learn more about The Missing 
Pink Breast Cancer Alliance, and in particular, their newly launched More Life magazine. You can check out their website or connect with them on social media over at themissingpink.org. And we'll leave links in the show notes for this episode so that you can check all of that out. And remember, you can always keep up with the latest in rare disease news by visiting our website at patientworthy.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Patientworthy on those platforms. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. It may seem like a small thing, but a review or a rating really does go a long way towards helping us out. And finally, if you have any questions about the podcast or perhaps an idea for a future episode, you can get in touch with me by sending an email to colby at patientworthy.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, just reach out to nehemiah at patientworthy.com. That does it for today's episode. Thank you once again to the amazing Jasmine of The Missing Pink for joining us on the show today. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.